Sustainability in Finance. Sustainability in Finance. A podcast hosted by the International Sustainable Finance Center in Prague. Join us and explore different perspectives of finance and its importance for the Central and Eastern European region. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our newest episode of Sustainability in Finance podcast. Today's episode will explore the field of journalism and how media can influence the latest thinking on sustainable finance. And today it is my pleasure to welcome Lucy Fitzgeorge Parker, editor at Responsible Investor, one of the oldest daily news publications dedicated to sustainable finance and ESG. Lucy, hello and welcome. Hello, Julian. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I myself am one of your readers, actually, so I'm especially excited about this episode. I have always appreciated how you and your team of journalists at Responsible Investors how you are able to cover and communicate some of these really complex topics in an easy to understand way, which I think is definitely needed. And even more so maybe in some of these markets and some of the countries where these topics are still developing and emerging. Okay, let's just dive into questions. So Lucy, you started your career in banking before switching to journalism in 2003, focusing on emerging markets, banking and capital markets. Could you please tell us a bit more about what influenced your decision for this career switch and how has your experience working in journalism unfolded for you? Well, it's a very good question. And I would not say it was entirely deliberate switching from banking to journalism. The thing was, when I first went to work in finance, I wanted to be a trader. I wanted to work on the trading floor. And at the time, for some unknown reason, people still thought that it was a good idea to tell people who had, say, a history degree like me, that they could go and work trading options, derivatives. And I think that was indicative of the time. Previously, trading had been a relatively simple business. And then had been possible for arts graduates to do that. When I got there and I did get a job on the trading floor, trading interest rate derivatives, it quickly became clear to me that this was not actually going to work because as we know now, you know, this was a field for PhDs, you know, people who have PhDs in maths, physics, etc. So much as I loved finance and uh, much as I enjoyed, I wanted to be a trader, it just didn't work out. So I went back to university and getting experience in different roles, including business travel, um, horse racing for as an odd one, and then went back to finance in uh, 2009, working for Euromoney and Global Capital. And almost straight away, I started covering Central and Eastern Europe for Euromoney. And that was partly due to the fact that I had already traveled a lot in the region. I first went to Russia in 1998. I first went to Ukraine in 2000. And I loved the region. I had spent quite a bit of time there and just seemed to me like a, a good fit. They need, so I said, well, you know, if you want me to write something, how about I write about Central and Eastern Europe? And I then spent 12 years doing that, which was absolutely fascinating. And I covered a lot of developments, a lot of crises, a lot of some success stories, a lot of less successful stories. And I met five Russian billionaires, I, I think, I, I, at last count. But yes, it was, a, it was a great time. It was, well, I say it was a great time to be covering Central and Eastern Europe. I think the best time was before the financial crisis, when Central and Eastern Europe was the most exciting area in the world, and everyone wanted to be there, and everyone thought this was just going to be a massive convergence play. And then, obviously, after 2008, 
people were a little bit less excited. It became apparent that actually it was a region with a lot of smaller economies, which were actually not as similar as people had hoped and weren't on a one-way path to to be you know equivalent to Germany next year. And so things sort of slightly fragmented a lot of the big Western companies, including banks that had all bought up everything in Central and Eastern Europe they could lay their hands on, started exiting the region. And it became quite naturally a more local market. But that also meant there was less going on that was relevant for the sort of international financial community that we wrote for at Euromoney. So that definitely rings um, resonates and rings a bell on a couple of different fronts, especially being from this region myself and growing up in the 90s. At that age, I didn't really have exposure to what's happening in <laughs> in finance and in Russia and Ukraine. But it's so we spent 12 years working on these topics and covering finance and banking in Central and Eastern Europe, as you said. So you coming from the UK, working on these topics in some of these countries that, first of all, sounds like loads of amazing stories from Russian billionaires to all the other things. But it would be quite interesting to maybe hear more about your experiences when it comes to actually writing and covering some of these topics and some of the main challenges you faced, not only you know coming from the UK to emerging markets, but overall, maybe when it comes to the culture shock you had while working <laughs> on it. Okay, well, that is... Definitely. There was definitely some, I don't know, culture shock, but definitely some cultural issues, I think. One of the things that was really interesting covering the market was that this it changed a lot during the 12 years I was covering it. When I first started out, there was still quite a lot of being written about Central and Eastern Europe. There was still quite a lot of focus on the region from the international media, from the international audience. And that just pretty much went on a steady downward trajectory for the whole time I was covering the region. It basically became a very, very unfashionable region from the point of view of the global financial community. Uh, apart from, and I used to say, when I was trying to work out sort of over the last, you know, later on, sort of late 2010s, what sort of stories would be of interest for a global readership from Central and Eastern Europe. And it was usually things like, well, a good money laundering scandal. There was not a good corruption scandal. There were always, or, or really good you know, bank failure that, so we had, uh, I did a lot of work on the Privat Bank in Ukraine where, you know, five, I, I don't know what I can say legally, but I think I can say that $5.5 billion worth of deposits were just disappeared. There was, I did quite a lot of work on the uh, money laundering scandals in the Baltics, in Latvia. I say the Baltics, actually, that's very unfair. Lithuania has had very little to do with any money laundering. Um, it was all Latvia and a little bit Estonia. So yeah, so stories that were of interest to our readers were really good scandals, financial scandals, sometimes trying to find things that were an interesting example of people doing things in Central and Eastern Europe that could be used by people elsewhere. And interestingly, one of those topics was often banking technology because Central and Eastern Europe has actually been a region that is way ahead of a lot of, certainly ahead of Western Europe in terms of banking technology. Various reasons for this. You had no legacy systems that you had to get rid of. Uh, people were building the tech um, you know, in the late 90s, 2000s. You also had a fairly sort of tech forward populations, people who wanted to be at the vanguard of progress and were keen to adopt lots of new technology. And as a result, you had some, uh, Poland was one of the first movers where you got really exciting about digital banking. 
Russia, another one um, which had uh, just amazing digital banking systems. Slovakia also, un- unusually. I've no- I never quite figured out why Slovakia was so far ahead on that, but Tatra Bank in Slovakia was their their big thing was doing digital uh, some really cutting edge digital banking. And I do remember because I used to do the banking awards for EuroMoney every year, and we did country awards for each country in Central Eastern Europe, which is quite a lot of awards to to go through for the judging and. The submissions from Slovakia were always things like, you know, banking through your Google Glass. If you remember Google Glass, you know, the, the smart glasses or whatever they were that lasted. lasted. <laughs> yes, lasted about five minutes. But, you know, all the submissions for awards from Slovakia were always something like that. And they were really you know, technologically advanced. There were some interesting stories there that were relevant for a, an international readership. But generally speaking, it, it was tough to find those sort of stories. And it got tougher as there was less and less international financial involvement in those countries. I mean, you saw it was partly to do with the size of the countries. It was also to do with the fact that the markets did become, in some cases, a bit more inward looking. I mean, in, in Hungary, in Poland, you had large nationalizations of the banking sector, also a much more inward looking politics, which made that more difficult. I mean, some of, the state-owned, some of the state-owned banks in Poland basically just stopped speaking to international journalists. And so it became gradually more difficult, really, to cover, to both to find stories that would be of interest for our readers, and yes, also to some extent to cover them. So much of the banking in the region was still dominated and is still dominated by large Western European banks or subsidiaries of, of those. So I spoke a lot to Raiffeisen Bank International and to Erste Bank, to Unicredit, to uh, Societe Generale before they started to sell up most of their subsidiaries in Central and Eastern Europe. It made the banking markets a bit less interesting in the sense that there was less local competition, but it did make it easier to cover because obviously you had a central point to go through and you had people who were used to reporting and to dealing with Western media. So that was that made my life easier. But I would certainly say there were it wasn't the easiest beat to cover, as you'd say. And uh, certainly, yeah, there was uh, it, it got I was feeling lonelier and lonelier as, as my time covering it went on as nobody else. And <laughs> I think I often felt that I was I think I often was literally the only person in the international media or English language media covering various topics. You did touch on quite a few interesting points there, by the way, because first of all, you mentioned, you know, you covered the CEE region, which is a lot of countries, actually, depending on the definition. But I think in some definitions, I think it's 11 countries, depending what you include, and maybe even more than that. And that's something we notice as well. It's often these countries are put together in terms of the region, which makes sense and probably is easier to define as a region. But there actually are quite a big differences, especially when it comes to the banks and some of the, some of the institutions. And although they do also share some of the challenges, I think, and used to share some of the challenges. So that's one. But also you mentioned how digitalization and that focus on technology in some of the banks here in the region was really visible, which I think also, by the way, being from Slovakia, so really glad <laughs> for all the praise and all the all the positive notes. I think it's also this late mover advantage, right? When I think when they as the as the banking sector and financial industry started developing a little bit later compared to the western europe we could all already take some of those things work in some of the technology and some of the solutions from the western europe and apply them from the start so i think that definitely helped so could you actually maybe talk more about your refocus or your switch 
to ESG and then maybe your path to responsible finance where you also focus on ESG and sustainable finance? Yes, certainly. And it was a very interesting shift because it really was going from the least fashionable area of, I say, financial journalism in Central Eastern Europe. And I am sorry for everyone in the region, but that was sadly true at the time, to the most fashionable area. It was accidental. I was asked by Euromoney if I would take on the role. And I was very pleased to do that because obviously it was a really interesting area. It was quite a, a difficult transition because I think that I had, I don't know, I, I think I'd been slightly sceptical of ESG and sustainable finance. Not not very sceptical, but just a little bit cynical. I, I think I'd sort of slightly assumed that people involved in it were maybe, you know, a little bit, it was maybe a little bit of a soft area. Maybe people weren't, were either, you know, maybe not the top quality types or maybe were a little bit, um, you know, maybe it was a bit of a, um, maybe they were a bit cynical. Maybe there was a, a bit of a sort of exploitation in that. And I, I just couldn't have been more wrong. And I was just, uh, the first couple of months uh, covering ESG, I was just blown away. I mean, the people I was talking to were the smartest, the most passionate, the most interesting. And also, I mean, wonderfully, we were talking about the cultural issues in, in, in CE for me earlier. I mean, people in sustainability talk all day uh, and, and they're interesting. I mean, as we know, CE, in, in CE, some, some cultures, people can be a little bit shorter with their sentences and, and a little bit more laconic. And in sustainability, you know, there's uh, incredibly intelligent, passionate people who just are, are really keen to sit down and explain everything to you because they are activists in themselves. They're you know, the, the sort of people who, who do this work in financial institutions. They tend to be fairly activist. They would have been, they could have been working for a, an NGO or a, you know, in civil society, but they've decided they want to try and achieve change from within. And so they are battling away there and they, but they really, really care about what they're doing. And as I say, a lot of them are, are super smart. The main challenge, so that was the, the good bit of it. The difficult bit was that, as I say, from being in covering Central and Eastern Europe, where I was often, often the only English language journalist writing about subjects, I was struggling to find things to write about. Suddenly you move into ESG and sustainable finance and it is just information overload. There is so much stuff coming at you day in, day out, press releases, announcements. I, I mean, my inbox was just exploding and I didn't, and, and everything comes at you so fast. I mean, this was also in 2020, so mid-2020. So it was really when ESG was starting to go mainstream and all sorts of massive initiatives were being announced and all of them were advertising themselves as the most groundbreaking, the most important ever, ever. And I'm sitting there looking at all these things, landing in my inbox going, I don't know which ones of these are. I, I have no idea which of these are really groundbreaking and important. It's it's really difficult to to get, get a grip on this. And uh, I'm thinking, oh, that's a fascinating subject. And then, but that's, uh, which of these do I cover? I don't know. And I think I spent about six months being a bit of a rabbit in the headlights, just watching all this coming at me. I don't, I don't really know what to get a grip on here. And then I started to get more of a feel for it. But what I do think has been very helpful was that I, I was actually still covering Central and Eastern Europe at the same time as covering ESG while I was at Euromoney. And I think what was very helpful were two things. One is that I am still relatively new to ESG. Now, in some respects, that means I still have a lot to learn. But it also means that I still know what it's like to be new to ESG. And I still, I still understand what it's like for all the 
many, many people who are still coming to this area fresh. And I think a lot of people who work in in the industry have been doing it for a long time and they they can't imagine what it's like not being part of the sustainable finance space. They can't imagine what it's like not being, you know, uh, not being committed to all of that or for it not to be the, the top priority in life. And Whereas for me, I still remember when, yeah, to be honest, when I was covering Central and Eastern Europe, 12 years, ESG came up maybe a couple of times. I mean, the one feature I wrote on it in that whole time was about, uh, I think it was 2018, I wrote a feature about um, ESG in Russia, where some of the big metals and mining companies that had, uh, you know, we had a lot of international ownership through their um, shares were starting to look at their ESG ratings and trying to focus on getting their sustainability credentials better. But that was literally it. Uh, there was there was no uh, sustainability never came up in that whole time. And so I'm very aware that for a lot of people, it's still not a priority and not and not for the wrong reasons, but just because oh, there's been a lot else to think about and there's been a lot else happening. Okay, go back to thinking about all the things that I covered, all the disruptions I covered during my time uh, covering Central and Eastern Europe. That was a lot for people to be dealing with before they started worrying about climate change and, and sustainability. Now, obviously, these are things that everyone needs to worry about, but it's definitely been useful to have that as a, a recent experience to understand both you know, how you can not be that aware of it and also what it's like trying to get to grips with the subject when everyone else seems to know exactly what they're doing. Acronyms are strewn around like confetti. There's SASB, ISSB, TCFD, PCAF, I don't know. It just goes on and on and on. And SFDR, CSRD, you know, it's a, it's tough. You could, you could continue for a while there. I, yeah. I could, yes. <laughs> and so I think that's been very helpful. And also covering ESG and Central and Eastern Europe at the same time for, for a couple of years was also helpful because as I got more and more into the sustainable finance space and myself became sort of part of that, I would still talk to people in Central and Eastern Europe who had absolutely no idea about any of the things that you know, to people in sustainable finance seem to be absolutely essential. I see the same, to be honest. I think even, obviously, us at ISFC working on these topics and, and I think not only us, but as you said, there are many people who have been focused on some of these topics for a while. And I think we have, sometimes we do operate in a bubble, which um, then it's it's really important to get out of the bubble and see that, you know, different people and different decision makers, policy makers, they have different priorities to juggle, right? As you mentioned, so for example, could be more immediate threats or crises. And you mentioned also a really interesting point that you being new to the ESG sustainable finance topics or newer let's let's say that gives you this slightly more relatable view or perspective which i think is something i mentioned in the beginning when and i think responsible investor articles actually are a bit easier to understand and you are able to interpret or maybe distill some of these really complex informations and difficult to navigate for your readers so that's i think that's that's a huge value in that journalism as well but no i i say the same i say the same and we actually notice that as well because working on these topics especially in this region i mean you mentioned 2021 and 20 and i even here in central europe and we could probably say see i feel like we went from zero to 100 <laughs> in two years, meaning it's not only all the acronyms, but also it's institutions trying to essentially navigate all these changes and all the all the developments, which can be pretty challenging. So yeah, 
completely completely agree and, and feel it feel it here as well well thank you for the thank you for the kind words for responsible investor so I should maybe just uh, just talk a little bit about that. So I moved to Responsible Investor a year ago, and that was a dream job for me. Just amazing. It is a wonderful place to work. It's it's a very, uh, as I think you mentioned at the beginning, it's one of the oldest publications in sustainable finance, which does not mean very old because sustainable finance is still not very old. But uh, it was founded in two thousand and seven, and it has a very loyal following. I think partly because. Word responsible investor, the our main audience are, as I say, again, sort of the activist element, as people say, within big financial institutions, particularly within uh, investment firms, asset managers, that's of fund managers, and I think because we cover we sort of cover investment in public markets, so sustainable finance in public markets, so you know, shares, bonds, that sort of thing. And we're talking, and the people who buy those are you're, talk, you're talking about big companies. These are companies it's difficult to make a, an, an impact on. You know, if you're a private equity investor, you can go and and you want to do sustainability, you can go and buy a clean tech company. Whereas if you are a fund manager, you have know, you're a big fund manager and you own shares in a an oil company. You own maybe even if you're a really big fund manager, I don't know, you maybe own 0.5% of the shares in that oil company. You can't change their direction overnight. You have to find ways to do that. You have to find ways of uh, persuading them. Engagement is the usual word. So you you talk to them. You maybe get together with other investors, with other fund managers, and try to, you know, with collective power like um, Climate Action 100 Plus, which is a, a collective engagement uh, vehicle where a lot of investors, big investors, got together to try and use their investment heft together to persuade some of the biggest emitters to change direction. And so there's a limited amount you can do as an investor in these sort of markets. And for that reason, it's often, again, not not from the journalist side this time, but from the, from the side of the financial institutions and the people who work in sustainable finance there. Certainly until recently, it's always been quite a lonely field. I mean, I've had people say they still cry every week at work because they find it it's such a trying to change the direction of large organizations, whether in your own fund management firm or the firms you, you invest in, is such a huge task. But pe- the argument is that if you're committed to the cause, then it's better to move the needle you know, 0.1% at a huge institution than to achieve a, a big change in a very small one. So why is that relevant for a responsible investor? Because those people are our sort of core traditional readership. And there's a, we have a very strong community around that um, because I think somebody said it used to be a bit of a sort of a support group for sustainable for lonely sustainable finance professionals who were hated by the rest of their organisations because they cared about the cause rather than the, rather than making you know, the organisation. But obviously this has changed. ESG has gone mainstream, and you know, a lot of uh, over the past two or three years. I mean, it's not only in CE that it's gone from naught to a hundred. There's been an enormous shift, um, maybe over a few more years, but not that much more that it's suddenly gone from being a fairly niche area to being completely mainstream. And of course, in Europe, a lot of that has had to do with regulation, which again, for the sort of public markets that, that we cover is just central. I mean, it's it's existential, as it were. There's, and the EU has led on that. Other countries are now following suit. And we have sort of green taxonomies being developed all over the world, taxonomies of you know, what can be eligible as sustainable investments. So that is, I mean, in terms of what our readers, I don't know, what keeps our readers up at night and certainly what they read on our website, uh, regulation is pretty much always the top 
anything we put out on EU sustainability regulation is always that is it's incredibly well read and not just by people in Europe by because Europe is still leading the rest of the world in this partly because it's just been doing more and I've been going you know so for first mover and doing more and going faster but also because anyone who is involved in the EU has to abide by these regulations anyone who wants to do business in the EU and that's a fairly sizable chunk of of the world so that has been that has been a big a big focus no it's definitely it's impacting international or multinational companies as well so very much a global impact and then so at responsible investor very focused on specifically on ESG and sustainable finance topics as you said or legislation and do you still focus on the CE region or is it any any regional focus too well not as much as I would like is the answer. So uh, before I arrived at Responsible Investor, it was mainly, there, there was, I mean, they've done some stuff on emerging markets in the past, but it's quite difficult because one of the problems with ESG and emerging markets, and I'm, you know, I'm a little bit wary of calling Central, certainly Central Europe emerging markets, but, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're comfortable with that designation, I am. Um, but I know, you know, I know that both, I know that, you know, Czechia and Poland have both graduated, and the, well, Poland is a developed market for, and all the rest of it. But yes, if, if we, if we're sort of taking it as emerging markets, which unfortunately a lot of people, but people still do, I think, um, perhaps unfairly. One of the biggest problems with ESG and emerging markets is that there is a big, gap in understanding on both sides. Now, for sustainable finance people, this is usually presented as, oh, you know, that people in emerging markets don't understand ESG, you know, they're a bit backward, they're a bit behind the curve and everything. Now, I this really annoys me because I don't think that's the case in a lot of in a lot of areas. And I think that people are in fact in uh, there are a lot of very smart people in a lot of emerging markets doing some very sophisticated things and who are very capable of you know, just as capable of anyone in Western Europe of, of getting to grips with this stuff. But there's sort of well, when are they going to catch up? When are they you know, when are they going to get up to speed with Western Europe or, or whatever? And but actually, the other way around is far worse. So everyone assumes, yes, emerging markets don't know about ESG. ESG people know nothing about emerging markets generally. Now, that's a terribly sweeping statement. And that's not entirely true. But I have been astonished at how little understanding there is of the financial and economic realities of emerging markets amongst sustainable finance people, particularly the ones who have who have always tended to work in sort of in Western Europe or North America. Um, and I know that emerging markets for those people is quite niche in a lot of respects. It still is. I, I always find that hard to believe because, or to get my head around because I've spent most of my journalistic career covering it. And you know, then it's like, oh, but it's actually only 2% of our allocations are to emerging markets. And it's quite a shift in perspective in that respect. I, I really do find the the lack of understanding and sort of also, this is a bit controversial, but the lack of will to understand what's going on in emerging markets a bit frustrating because i mean even if it's i mean the, the, the very you know most basic there's the question of uh, if you have a if you have a small let's let's say a hypothetical small emerging markets country has discovered gas offshore gas something like that and a fairly poor country maybe a frontier market really quite a poor developing country i mean i've seen cases where 
that has happened. And for that country, it has been the best thing that's happened to them in 100 years. I mean, it's, it's you know, that money might just go to buying buying some politician's son's Lamborghinis, but it might also go to actually, you know, creating a bit of uh, spreading the wealth around to building schools, building hospitals, etc. And then you have sustainability purists in the West who are saying, oh, no, but that's disgraceful. You can't, you can't go and, and exploit that gas, that gas field because that, that's, that's bad for the planet. And you're like, well, uh, I don't think that's a, a sort of rather arrogant way of, of, of looking at it. But I think also just things like we people talk a lot about blended finance. Um, everyone always keeps saying, oh, we need a lot more money into emerging markets to finance the transition. We must have more blended finance structures, which is where public, public sector, whether it's governments or development banks, take on some of the risk and, and make that easier for investors. But the fact is that they, people don't understand why you can't have blended finance because there is a, a big. Most of these investments are uh, there's there's a big currency risk. And I won't go into details because I don't want to get. To, I can see this is getting going to get too technical very quickly. But basically, there are a lot of risks associated with this. That a lot of people, when they just say, "Oh, this should happen because that's what needs to happen for the planet," and they don't actually take the trouble to understand what that actually involves. And I think that is so. To go back to where. I come into this, one of the things I am very keen to try to do at Responsible Investor, gradually, because it, you know, it's a tough thing to do, is to try and build bridges a bit between ESG and emerging markets. And that doesn't just mean, you know, as I say, it doesn't just mean saying, oh, here's, you know, ed- emerging markets people, here you are, we'll, we'll help to educate you on ESG. It's also like, I want to hear what, what you guys are doing on this. I want to hear what, you know, I want to hear what people are doing in Malaysia, in South Africa, in Hungary, because there are some hugely interesting projects. I mean, Hungary, for example, the, the, the central bank is doing a, a lot of work on a pilot project for understanding biodiversity risk to the financial system. Now, that's one of, I think it's like two or three central banks in the world that are looking at that. There's lots of interesting stuff going on in these markets, and I do want to bring that to the ESG community and, and help them to understand what is going on and what the issues are in EM and vice versa. And obviously, Central and Eastern Europe always very close to my heart, and I want to uh, continue to cover it and, and to get a wider audience for some of the, some of the issues and, and for the things that are going on in the region. And which is why um, one of the one of the ways of doing that, obviously, is to is to get involved in local events, and and that is why I wanted Responsible Investor to partner with the CE Sustainable Finance Summit that um, ISFC is running, uh, because I really want to hear what people have to say there, and and I also want uh, you know to be able to build on those build on the connections that I, I've made in the past, and and help sort of make connections for the future, try and facilitate some information flow both ways. And you, you actually beautifully describe pretty much the, the entire purpose or the reason why we even started the summit. And it's exactly that two-way communication. So it's not only, you know, to bring experts from, from the EU, from Western, Western market to tell people here what to do. That's definitely not the reason. But actually to also showcase what is happening here and also to open that channel for two-way communication because it's exactly as you said, that, that is that is lacking or maybe has been lacking. And, and we have actually called it a few times um, green iron curtain <laughs> <laughs> in a way. And it's and to be honest, I mean, but it's this is not not only in in terms of the markets, you know, because you you know yourself quite well. Obviously, many of these companies, whether that's asset managers or banks, they are international now. They have subsidiaries here, as you said. But also, when it comes to communication of some of the challenges or perceptions or perspectives from these countries and member states back to the Commission, the you know, at the EU level. So I think there's 
this is definitely something that needs more focus. But on the positive note, I think it's getting better now with more and more institutions and initiatives and organizations actually being more active on this um, in terms of communication from both sides. So, and you did mention you describe your leadership quite well as well. So it's quite interesting to hear you know, the insights you can get from the data on your leadership. And one question came to mind based on that, because obviously seeing which articles and what topics are resonate the most or are most read, could you maybe tell us what you think are some of the key trends in sustainable finance and ESG for 2023 or maybe for the next one, two years? Okay, yes, definitely. And they, I think... It's the, the main story is, is continuity from last year. So regulation absolutely still top of the list. In fact, if anything, it's becoming more important for our readers because there's still a lot of uncertainty about some of the EU sustainable finance regulation and definitions and all the complexities that I am absolutely not going to go into now. But that's still, and we're hearing that people are still very, very worried about, as in, in financial institutions, are still very worried about how that's going to play out. And that, that's a, Our other most read topic last year was the backlash against the ESG in the US, particularly amongst the right wing and Republicans. And obviously, we've had quite a few there at state level, particularly in in the US, there have been uh, laws passed banning local pension funds from using any form of ESG investing, uh, banning them from dealing with banks that have uh, deemed to be boycotting fossil fuels. And and it's become a big part of the discourse, the political discourse in the US. And I mean, we even had this last weekend with the uh, bailout of Silicon Valley Bank. I believe that DeSantis, the governor of Florida, blamed that on ESG, blamed the failure on ESG, which uh, was was a bit of a stretch. But um, <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, the ESG is pretty much getting blamed for everything by some on the right in the US, which I mean, to some extent, from the European perspective, is just know, you can't help laughing, but uh, it is also a very serious matter for anyone who has uh, investments or has operations um, in Europe and in in the US, because on the one hand, you've got Europe, which is uh, moving at top speed on sustainability. On the other hand, you've got the US, where it's becoming a bit of a dirty word. And so, I mean, we're having now, you know, in the Europe, everyone's concerned about green greenwashing. People are saying uh, in the US, the, the topic is green hushing, where people are actually having to keep quiet about what they're doing on sustainability because they don't want to come under fire from right-wing politicians. And I think that is going to continue to be a theme. We're starting to see signs that will, um, that maybe the tide has turned on that in that there are, the, the sort of pushback against that has has started. It's becoming clear that actually boycotting some of the biggest banks and asset managers is going to cost states quite a lot of money. So that's kind of undermining some of the argument for that. But um, yeah, I'm sure that store, that will run and run. Other big topic at the moment is uh, biodiversity and nature. That's really emerged as a topic over the past couple of years. I think as people have started to, well, I think anyone who actually starts looking, looks at the numbers on biodiversity immediately goes, oh my God, this is possibly, possibly even a bigger crisis than climate, I've heard some people say. That's a big topic. It's a big topic as well because people haven't yet quite worked out what to do about it from a sort of investment or financial perspective. There's people are trying to understand ways of, of 
understanding biodiversity risk to their portfolios, their financial holdings, also what they can actually do to where the opportunities are for investment, what they can do to what they need to do to help, um, you know, whether there's going to be regulation around biodiversity. There's already some in the EU, but um, particularly things like also supply chains and deforestation and supply chains. So that's a big issue. And actually, that brings me to the other one. Yes, the the, uh, the supply chain issues. That's also that's both environmental and social with human rights issues and with the corporate supply chain due diligence directive cs triple d coming in the eu that's something people are focusing on quite a lot other areas always data and esg data and disclosure all the all the questions of just how do you measure all this stuff where do you get the data from um, you know are how do you obviously a lot of in a lot of cases companies are being required to report on their their ESG data um, or will be quite soon. But data is, is a huge challenge for everyone in the financial industry, particularly now that all the financial firms have made net zero commitments, because how do you know if you're, going, if you, if you're managing to keep your net zero commitment if you haven't got the data? And, that's a, and when you're dealing with a whole global bank, then trying to understand the emissions associated with every aspect of every loan is just a logistical nightmare, really. It's all connected, right? It's interesting how, so when you mentioned legislation and then data or supply chains and biodiversity, it's, you know, when it comes to legislation, we are now waiting for the Environmental Delegated Act for the taxonomy as well. And it's, again, as you mentioned, the CSDD, suddenly you are including your supply chain in the ESG reporting as well. And, you know, so it's so much more data needed, even from smaller companies who have never collected this data or reported on it. So it's interesting how it's touching every single front and it's all connected across all these fronts. And and we could probably go on and on. Well, I believe I believe I did I did mention earlier on that uh, yeah people in sustainability can talk all day, and I am certainly one of them. <laughs> but also because the the topics are once once you get into this, the topics are so fascinating. I mean, it's so far reaching as well. I mean, you, you know, we're talking about the whole of the whole of climate. We're talking about the whole of biodiversity and nature, whole of human rights, everything. I mean, it's just such a fascinating and challenging area that yes, I could absolutely talk all day about it. I think that's exactly the the reason why is it so fascinating by the way, because it goes across the sectors and fields, right? It's not only finance anymore, which is really interesting how it's suddenly touching on all these different areas. And, you know, we can go really, really deep on all of them. And some of them, actually, most of them, I think, can get very technical. Okay, so thank you very much, Lucy, for joining us today. And it was genuinely a pleasure talking to you. And we look forward to seeing you in person as a, as a speaker at our C Sustainable Finance Summit which will take place in May 2023 in Prague, where also responsible investors will be one of the main media partners. And thanks to all our listeners too. And stay tuned for the upcoming episodes with inspirational leaders in sustainable finance. Thank you and bye. Thank you for listening to Sustainability in Finance. Check out our website at isfc.org and make sure to follow us on social media for more content. We hope you join us for the next episode.